if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. It's going to bother me. How many hours are in a week? 168? Okay, all right, there you go. 128? What is it? All right, I'm hearing different numbers. I need somebody loud. Okay, thank you. It's, I'm just going to have that running backwards through my mind while I'm preaching the sermon. I just need it cleared. It's good. All right, it's fine. I'm from Alabama. I don't do math no good, okay? Roll Tide. There you go. If you have your Bible, open to the book of James. <laughs> All right, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can just look underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you. Consider that a gift from us to you. Uh, we'd love for you to be able to open God's Word and to be able to read it. Over the last few weeks, one of the things that we've observed as we've been studying the book of James uh, is that these phrases that often seem to be random, disconnected, a series of just wisdom sayings are actually all coming together in James chapter 1 to reveal to us a coherent treatment of temptation. And they begin to introduce for us in James chapter 1 the themes that we're going to see revealed and kind of unpacked throughout the rest of the book, which is important for us, especially as we look at the verses that we're going to focus our attention on today. Verses 2 through 12 asserted this importance of being having fortitude in temptation so that we might become people through temptation and trials who are complete and whole. Remember, James has been teaching us about living an integrated life who we are privately and who we are publicly, what we think and how we speak, what we think and how we act. And we all know it's very possible for us to know the right things, but to do the opposite things. James says that's not an integrated person. That's not a whole person or a complete person. He wants people to be whole and complete. So he invites us to think about that. And then verses 13 through 18, he talks about these distorted human desires that we have, these desires that sometimes lead us to blame God in the midst of trials and temptations in our life, that we become frustrated with God and we say, God is actually tempting me, that God is doing something sinful because of the situation that I find myself in. And James begins to unpack for us that that's a distorted desire uh, within us, that this is distorted and it leads us down a path where we begin to think things and say things that we would never think and never say in our right minds. And then we come to these verses now, verses 19 through 27, as we'll kind of close out the chapter in the next few weeks, where he begins to give us some practical implications of trusting God in trials. And he tells us really to do three things. We're going to see them all today, and then we're going to unpack them again over the next few weeks. He tells us that we need to hear the word, we need to receive the word, and we also need to do the word in, in our lives. We need to hear it, we need to receive it, and we need to do it because the temptation is to become quick-tempered in trials, and it is to speak out of turn. Now, if we don't see what James is doing here, we're going to come to these verses, and we're going to simply think James is saying, anger's bad, don't be angry. And let me just be very clear, even though I don't think that's the main point of what James is saying, I want to say clearly to you, your anger left unrepented of will send you to hell. You should take that very seriously if that's how you've read these verses before. My anger, unrepented of, will send me to hell. Sin, unrepented of, always, will send you to hell. Sin is nothing to trifle with. The problem is that we come to these verses, and for those of us, perhaps, who think of ourselves as kind of hair-trigger people, that this verse is our verse, and it becomes a bit of a life verse. I need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And we fail to see what James is doing as he teaches us how this anger is manifesting itself in the life of a believer 
when they're facing trial. Anger that they have, not just at other people. Anger is almost always directed at somebody else, but in this case, it's directed at God. How dare you? Who do you think you are? And so James says, this person is not integrated. They're not whole. So we're going to come and see a little bit of the whole picture of what James is doing for us. We're going to read the whole chapter again to kind of situate ourselves, and then we're going to focus on verses 19 through 21. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let each ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us right now as we give our attention to it. Father, that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts Father, we pray right now that you'd help us to focus. I know that the enemy seeks to snatch the good word that we are hearing. But, Father, we ask that we would be able to 
give attention to your word now and grow in maturity. And God, together, the believers and I, we pray and ask that for the person who is, not, who is here and is not yet a believer, that you would be merciful to write your word on their heart during this sermon, that you would cause them to be born again. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Near the end of his life, Billy Graham, while he was dying in those latter years, he was losing his eyesight. He wasn't able to move around very much. One of the people who was attending to him asked him, what did he wish that he would have done that he didn't do? And when we think of Billy Graham's life and how astounding it was, if you're not familiar with it, one of the useful things that you could do over the next month is get a good biography of Billy Graham and read up on his life. But when we think of Billy Graham's life, for those of us who know about him as an evangelist, it's hard for us to imagine what could he have done that he didn't do? What could he wish that he had done that he did not have the opportunity to do? He preached to over 215 million people in his lifetime. He did over 400 evangelistic crusades. Perhaps some of you here today are people who got converted by listening to or watching or attending one of those crusades or know people who had. He preached in over 185 different countries and territories in his life. He was literally friends with and counselors of presidents of the United States. What was there that Billy Graham didn't get to do that he wishes that he could have done? And at the end of his life, Sitting there, when someone asked him, and my assumption would be nothing, he said, I wish I would have spent more time memorizing the Bible and not just reading it. So that in these days, when I can't read it, I would have it to recall while I'm here on my deathbed. Billy Graham, greatest evangelist of the 20th and 21st century, preached to more people than you and I can count. Billy Graham, as I just evidenced, I guess, not knowing how many hours are in a week. Billy Graham, done more than any of us are able to do, and yet at the end of his life says, I wish that I would have spent more time knowing the Word and having it written on my heart through Scripture memory. Because Billy knew at the end of his life what many of us forget but treasure at the beginning of our life, is that it's this Word that not only brings about the fruit of conversion, but it actually drives us deeper into the fruit of conversion. James, saying something similar as he's writing here in James chapter 1, wants us to see as first fruits of God's renewed creation, verse 18, that Christians should begin to exhibit in their conversations and in their emotional expressions the reality of the new creation. And he does that by framing that teaching with three points that we've already highlighted, that we need to be hearers of the Word, we need to receive the Word, we need to do the Word, and those three broad frames will guide us today. Notice first, the Word of God demands attention. Hear the Word. Look at me again in verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Having called us to keep the truth of new birth at the forefront of our minds, verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. James wants us to guard against becoming the type of Christian who's stuck in infancy. So he says, verse 19, be quick to hear. What should we be quick to hear? In immediate context, if we look back up to verse 18, what we should be quick to hear is the word of truth. And yet, ever practical, the ever practical James does not proceed to outline for us the most perfect plan for daily Bible reading. He doesn't even list a variety of options. Why? Because James knows what you and I know too well, that it is possible to be unfailing 
and regular in our Bible reading and achieve no more in that time than simply moving our bookmark forward another page. So he says, verse 19, that we are to lead with our ears. That is, we are to listen more. We are to give attention to the word of truth while simultaneously learning to be measured with our words, that is to speak less when enduring trials of various kinds. Friends, the blunt fact is, is that our life with God is not something that is restricted to or sequestered off to these, quote, quiet times. In fact, if you read the Bible, one of the things that you will never see as a primary indicator of somebody's spiritual health is how long their daily quiet time is. I hope that you have a time that is quiet with the Lord. And I would encourage you to mark off time every day to read and to pray and to study. It is good for your soul. It is good for my soul. But the Bible never says this is how you can measure maturity in your life, by how long your daily quiet time with the Lord is. Because it is possible for us to be unfailingly regular in that time and still know nothing of the Lord. That we are able to have those times and isolate ourselves from people or we are to restrict those times from how we actually interact with God. And for James, there is nothing, quote, quiet about the times of the people that he is writing to. He's writing to people who are experiencing trials that are described of as evil, that actually test their faith and cause them to be prone to doubt so that they might trust in the riches of the world or be caused to accuse God of doing wicked things in their life. And yet he never counsels us to vent our anger to God as a means of dealing with it. Rather, he invites us and invites them, these people here, to turn away from that wickedness in our lives and to, verse 5, ask God when we lack wisdom to navigate these tumultuous scenarios. And verse 19, he tells us and gives us advice to be quick to hear the word of truth. Because if we do not have an attentive ear to the word of truth in the ordinary circumstances of our life, we certainly will not have an attentive ear to the word of truth when we are tracing, tracing trials of various kinds in our lives. We will not become different people when we're reading our Bible, when we shut up the door and we go and read in private, or when we get down on our knees and pray. We will actually go into those moments and we will leave unchanged. Friends, James knows that until heaven comes, this world will be filled with hard things. There will be trials that believers face. And this world will be a hard place to live. And James knows that the propensity of the believer in that interim time period will become to be uh, embittered as they're facing trials. And they will begin to say things like, God could have changed things for me, but he didn't. God had the power to do so, but he didn't do the pow- use that power the right way. So it's his fault and not mine. But James calls us to cry out in faith and in prayer. He never tells us to roar and rage and anger, but he tells us to listen, to listen to the word of truth that has caused us to be born again. We must listen to that word that tells us what is real and what is right, what is true and what is good, regardless of how we feel in the circumstances that we are facing in this life. And it is by God's grace, as we give our attention to that word, that we begin to cultivate the virtues that James is actually laying out for us in this book that begin to pay dividends in how we live our lives. 
And he doesn't say that this is just for some people, the people who have uncontrollable rage or people who have really bad circumstances in their life or the people who are uniquely bad sinners. James says that all of us need this counsel. Let every person be this way, James says. As the first fruits of God's renewed creation, every Christian should begin to exhibit in their conversations and in their emotional expressions the reality of the new creation because, verse 18, they have been born again by the word of truth. How do we know that we've been born again by the word of truth? The word of truth begins to govern how we speak, and it begins to govern how we respond to the circumstances around us. So in a very proverbial style, James says, every Christian should listen more, speak less, and resist anger. Verse 19, let every person be quick to hear. Let every person be slow to speak. Let every person be slow to anger. But why? Is that just simply good things to do? James gives us a reason. Because the great talker is rarely a great listener, and never is the ear more firmly closed when anger takes over. So James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we read these verses, we're right to see that James has some ambivalence in his teaching on anger. On the one hand, we are right to say about this verse, just like we would say about speaking, that when he says be slow to speak, he does not mean never speak. He's actually telling us that we need to give due thought and be careful with the words of our mouths, that there are times that we need to be able to speak, but we need to speak with clarity and with wisdom. Just like when we read these verses, we're right to say, well, James isn't saying that I should never be angry, that there are things that I should be angry about in our lives. But on the other hand, he is very quick to tell us that human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God, a pretty unequivocal statement. And where he implies this possibility that the two kind of sit in tension, it seems to me that most of us, if we're honest, would have to venture to say that this holy anger that we often chalk this verse up to belongs to a state of sanctification that none of us in this room have ever achieved. James is writing to all of us, to you and to me, to Christians in these churches, because their anger, your anger, my anger, does not produce the righteousness of God. Writing to people who have believed the gospel, who are raging against the God who has saved them, and raging against the people that God has saved along with them, In fact, he tells us that that anger not only does not accomplish it, but other portions of Scripture tell us that that anger actually invites the wrath of God. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Friends, an angry spirit is never an attentive spirit to God's Word. Because when anger comes out, listening flies out. But James tells us that those who would listen to the Word must train themselves to be listeners. They need to be listeners, and to that end, they must covet and cultivate a reticent tongue, and they must be calm-tempered because everything must be made subservient to this great fundamental practice of hearing the word of truth in our lives, especially in trials that are prone to cause us to blame God and to be angry and to use Him as a scapegoat for our anger. So James says these very 
quick practical implications of trusting God in trials are being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and they will help us when we're tempted to be prone to fly off the handle during our trial. And they will manifest in our conversations, in our emotional expressions, a reality, a reality that has taken root because of the word of truth in verse 18. We will become a of first fruits of that creation. The Word of God demands attention. Notice second, the Word of God demands reception. Receive the Word. Verse 21, James writes, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. We expose ourselves to God's Word by verse 19, hearing it, And our first response to actually hearing it, verse 21, is to receive it. But how do we receive it? We would think, just because I've heard it, I've received it. But James tells us, no, receiving is different than just hearing. It's possible to hear and not receive. It's possible to hear and not do. It's possible to be somebody who has this word in us, but is actually not living out the fruit of this word. The proper preparation, James tells us, verse 21, is to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. James is not telling us, as we saw last week, that we simply need to pull up ourselves by our own moral bootstraps, that we need to try harder. Rather, James is telling us something that is very Pauline and Christian, that we need to put away or put off or repent of and turn away from all of the filthiness and rampant wickedness. And notice how he describes it in our lives. We describe it as isolated, singular events that we struggle with. But James is not like that because James is more honest than we are. James says it is a rampant wickedness. It is powerful. It is contagious. It is manifold in its expression. It runs through every area of our lives. Our sin is creative and devastating, and it finds its way into everything that we do and everything that we say, especially in relation to sins of speech and sins of anger. Just think of all of the things that you never thought that you'd hear yourself say. But if you're honest, when you were angry, you found yourself saying them. And just think of all of the things that you would have thought, I would have never done anything like that until the circumstances were harder than you wanted them to be and you were angry. And just think of all of the people that you thought, I would never react like that until you were pressed and those circumstances changed everything. James says all of the dirty, rotten, vile, unclean, defiling speech and all of the uncontrolled, unrestrained, hysterical anger that takes over our lives must be put away or repented of so that we might receive with the required attitude, verse 21, meekness, inhumility. We are to recognize that we have an utter spiritual bankruptcy, that we have an inability to transform ourselves. Why do we need to hear the word? Because we can't change ourselves. We've tried to change ourselves. We've made promises to God. We've made promises to our friends. We've made promises to our employer. We've made promises to our children. We've made promises to our spouses. I will never do that again. I will never be like that again. I will never say anything like that again. And we leave unchanged. James says the only way that we're actually able to change is to humble ourselves and receive with meekness a word that actually transforms us because it's only when we're humble 
that we begin to see clearly that we need something outside of ourselves. And notice how James describes it. The implanted word, verse 21. Thankfully, when God causes us to be born again by the word of truth, he also implants his saving and instructive word in our hearts. So Jeremiah would say it this way when God is speaking of his new covenant promises. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." James writes to these New Covenant Christians who experience the fulfillment of this promise. And he says, verse 21, the divine word that is implanted is actually able to produce something, the salvation of our souls. Now, it's important for us when we're reading about what James is saying here to think of how this word is used in the New Testament and how we often speak of it. In the New Testament, when this word save is used, we often see it when we're reading it rightly as referring to a future deliverance from God's wrath at the final judgment. Paul says it this way, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life in a future day. But as modern English-speaking Christians, we often use this word to refer to the moment that we become a Christian. And we say, God saved me. But James is not referring to that particular moment when we professed faith in Christ. James is pointing us forward to that future salvation that is ours in Christ. And we know that we can approach that future salvation with confidence if we are being transformed by the implanted word. If we are people who have been born again by that word, we will be changed by the implanted word. And we can approach that salvation with confidence. And if we are people who profess to be born again by that word, but live unchanged by that word, we can have no confidence as we look forward to that final day when God will come to save his people. James is warning us. He's warning us against any presumption, against anything that we would ultimately rely on, on lean on to save us other than a changed life that believes in God. That we are never to presume that we have been born again by the word of truth if we are not changed by the word of truth. So what kind of faith is James talking about? One that is transformed and wholly leans on the word. Another pastor, Mark Dever, was sharing an illustration he was speaking about in the 1950s when skyscrapers were being built and it was coming uh, into vogue for those skyscrapers to actually have glass walls. Now, one of the things that would happen for these buildings when they had these glass walls is that in the early days, it was very difficult for people to work in the rooms where there were glass walls. They didn't like working in there because the wall would be something that they saw everything that was out there and they would look 30 or 40 stories down and it didn't feel stable. So not only would they not want to work in there, they didn't want to work anywhere around the room. Everybody would just huddle to the interior and they had all of these wonderful, beautiful office spaces where nobody was working. And 
the people who owned the buildings were obviously distraught because they wanted people to work in the office spaces that they had. So they brought in the engineer, and the engineer would talk to them and say, you know, this glass is this thick, and this is what it's made out of, and it's meant to take this kind of hit, and it's safe, and you can trust it, and this is how we designed it with this type of load. And although the people received that information, and they still did not move into the room. So the engineer there one day, realizing that none of the people liked what they were hearing, said, okay, this is what I need everybody to do. Everybody to walk into the room, but everybody stand at the door. And then as they're standing against the door, he said, I want you to look at that wall over there. And he went and he ran full steam at the wall and he threw himself into the glass and he bounced off. Because he believed that what he had built would stand under the pressure. That's the type of faith that James is talking about. A faith that believes that in the trial and in the hardship and in the difficulty, and we're trying to put sin to death, that it will withstand the hardship. A faith that we can wholly lean upon and trust in completely. Not a faith that we just give assent to intellectually or that we merely profess to believe, but a faith that we so desperately lean upon and cling to and rely upon that it actually shapes the way that we live and it gives us confidence to move into spaces that make us feel uncomfortable. And friends, we will only have a faith like that when we've actually been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that tells us that we are far worse off than we ever thought that we were. Sinners devastated by our sin and deserving wrath and damnation and judgment. But who have been forgiven of that sin because of what God did on the cross through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that if we trust in Jesus, that we can have a faith that not only saves us in that moment, but that is stable for the rest of our life and produces change in us that leads to lives that are radically different, words that are dramatically different, thoughts that are dramatically different, where everything is shaped because we are relying completely and wholeheartedly on the truthfulness of that gospel message. Believer, have you professed to believe that, but you are not building your life on that and are actually not trusting the word of God? The message of the gospel for you today in James is the same that it always is. Repent, trust, believe, rely, hope in him. And perhaps you're here today and you are not a Christian. You're going to hear today what you will hear many weeks, that you are a sinner and your sin has separated you from God, and that if you repent of your sin, you will be born again by the Spirit of God. And right now, we are telling you that that is not something that just changes you in this moment, but it changes everything about you. And if you cling to Christ, he will forgive you of your sins. The scripture assures us that every time we turn to him, we are met with the forgiving mercy of a loving God. Brother or sister, you can do that today by asking God to forgive you of your sins, and he will forgive you. It is as simple as that, but you can be as confident in that as we are this morning. And if you have questions about what that means or that just doesn't quite make sense yet, find me, I'm going to be standing at the tunnel, speak to one of the members, take one of those Bibles, or maybe just go to the Membership Matters class today, because in so many ways, that class is just telling us the truth of the gospel. You can't join our church if you're not a Christian, but you can certainly learn about the gospel if you're not a Christian, and we'd love for you to sit in there and learn more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. James is calling these Christians to not have a passive faith, James is not calling these Christians to live a nominal Christian existence. James is calling these Christians and all of us to believe and to show that belief by an obedient response to God by trusting completely in what he has done. 
because it's the first fruits of God's renewed creation, Christians should exhibit in their conversations and in their emotional expressions the reality of the new creation. The Word of God demands attention. The Word of God demands reception. Notice third, the Word of God demands application. Do the Word. Now, I want you to see it with me in verses 19, 21, and 22. Let every person, verse 19, be quick to hear the Word of truth, verse 18. And then verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted Word, verse 22. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. James says, if you're a Christian, you're going to act on what you hear. You're going to do something because of what you've heard. You're not just going to profess to know something. You're not going to simply think something, but you're going to act on what you hear. That's the message of the book of James. Act on what is true. When we become, verse 18, a kind of first fruits of his creation, there's a realization that our conduct is out of step with the righteousness of what God requires. A righteousness that is able to save our souls, the scripture tells us. And by giving our attention to and receiving and applying the word of God, we can experience with greater and greater measure what has already been done for us by the Lord. Every day for the believer provides a new opportunity for us to evidence that we are saved. Every day for the believer provides an opportunity for us to be driven deeper into repentance and deeper into faith, and showing more that we are applying the gospel message, that the new power that is at work within us, the Spirit, is actually producing something in us that causes us to interact with the world and those around us differently. We have to remember that James is writing to Christians, Christians who would live in churches like this, who would interact with one another and have unbelieving family and friends. And he's saying that word will change the way that you live with one another and with the unbelieving world. And he tells us that the energy that brings about all of this change is that word. And it's everywhere in the section. Verse 18, word of truth. Verse 21, the implanted word. Verse 22, be doers of the word. Verse 23, be a hearer of the word. Verse 25, he tells us there is a perfect law or a law of liberty. Chapter 2, verse 8, he tells us it is a royal law. Chapter 2, verse 12, it is a law of liberty. This word is what brings about the change in the life of the believer. Just as at conversion, we are presented outwardly with the gospel message that then takes root in our hearts. So now through the new nature that is ours and through application of that same message, the inner life is changed. Growth, James tells us, happens when we follow and receive and more fully apply the word that has actually made us children of the Father. Scripture, James says, is something we are to immerse ourselves in. It's, and he's so immersed in it, it informs everything that he wrote. Last week, we saw that James is immersed in the Word, so it comes as no surprise that once again, Jesus' teaching is informing James. If you have your Bible, flip with me to Matthew chapter 13, a very familiar section to many of us. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 1. Very famous and familiar parable in Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd came and stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, 
saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now drop to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and he snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. They hear it, but the enemy snatches it. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I believe, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. Friends, be careful when we hear this. But when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I believe, but it was too difficult. I don't want to go down that road any farther. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the world, the word. My friends, this is us. This is our country. This is our nation. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Think of all the things that you long for in your life, choking the word of God out of it. Not all of them are bad. But you love them more than you love the Word, which is revealing to us who God is. As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one good soil. Everyone else seems to respond, but they respond poorly. This is the one right response. As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the Word and he understands it. James tells us that we know he understands it because his life is different. He indeed bears fruit. Jesus says the same. Surprise, James is relying on Jesus' teaching. He bears fruit and it yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another case, 60, in another case, 30. And what's important to see there is it doesn't matter how much fruit you bear. You might bear 100 or 150 or 300 or 30 or 10, but you are bearing fruit. It does not matter if you bear 100 or 60 or 30, but you must bear fruit, keeping with repentance. And if you're not bearing fruit, keeping with repentance, then it has not landed in the good soil. In the parable of the sower, there is both the planting of the seed and the reception of the seed that has been planted so that, as Matthew says, this fruitfulness follows as people hear and accept it and change and bear fruit. And the soil, Jesus is really clear, is having the seed sown that is relying on the Word of God. But what makes the soil good? James helps us so that there's guaranteed growth. We must prepare and clear away all of the stuff that would prevent us from receiving it. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Brothers and sisters, you must take seriously putting sin to death in your life. You must take seriously throwing off old life patterns so that there is a required attitude by which then you are receiving the word meekness, so that it can take deep root and be implanted, so that it proves then 
that you are saved by it. James tells us that we move from new birth, verse 18, into new life by hearing the word, which corresponds to this new nature, and it progressively works itself out in our lives. So just a few applications for us as we close. First, to mess up when it comes to anger, as David Pallison said, is to mess up your entire life. It only takes, as many of us have learned, one time for our anger to actually get the best of us, to ruin the circumstances and situations in our life. It destroys relationships. It gets people fired. It gets people arrested. It puts people behind bars. It makes us embittered. To mess up with anger ruins the entirety of our lives. And not all of it is always visibly displayed. There is an anger that is simmering just beneath the surface for many of us, and we've learned how to manage it and keep it there, but it is ruining and corroding everything in our lives. James is telling us that that anger, when it's there, whether it's visibly expressed or vocally expressed or just simmering underneath the surface, is actually ruining not only our life, but it is devastating our relationship with God because then we begin to think wrong and false things about Him. Second, I confess what I don't like to admit, but it's true, that I've taught my kids that it's okay to be angry at times simply by being angry in front of them and not being as quick as I should to repent of it. And this text this week was another reminder Not only do you feel unqualified to preach, but to not trifle with sin in our lives. That anger must be repented of. Brothers and sisters, perhaps we have catechized one another. Perhaps we have catechized our family and friends to think that it's okay to act this way. When the scripture says it's not, it's never okay to act that way. There's never an excuse It doesn't matter if you've been hurt. It doesn't matter if you've experienced trauma. It's never okay for you to sin against other people. Just like it's never okay for me to sin against my kids. Third, what I said at the beginning is true now. Anger unrepented of will send you to hell. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Fourth, Why is anger here? Because James knows that what happens in the midst of trials and what these people are calling temptations, as he's writing in verses 13 through 18, is that they will become angry in particular at God. And he becomes the scapegoat for the reason that they're able to live the way that they want. Brothers and sisters, have you used God as a scapegoat in your life and justified your actions based off of the things that God hasn't done that you think that he should or has done that you think that he shouldn't, that he has provided that you didn't want or that he didn't provide that you did want? And God becomes the justification for the way that you're lashing out, whether it's in here or it's out of here or it's in the way that you live in front of other people. James says that when that happens, we are not integrated and we are not whole, that we are to put that to death. We are not to be an angry people. We are to be a peaceful people because we have been made righteous by this word of truth. As first fruits of God's renewed creation, Christians exhibit the reality of the new creation in their speech and their emotional expressions, and we see the fruit of that 
as they gather together, this renewed creation, as they gather together around the Lord's table. Because it's when we gather around this meal, we see what happens when God works among us. He takes people who were lost, and they are found. They were dead in their sin, and they're alive in Christ. They were not born again, and now they're born again, and they are a part of God's people, and they gather around God's table and remind themselves of God's gospel, a gospel that has saved them and is changing them and is working itself out in their lives. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus instituted this sacrament of his body and his blood, it was a sign and it was a pledge of his love for us. It was a sign and a pledge, and we are to continually remind ourselves of the great sacrifice that the Savior paid so that we might share in his risen life. And when we gather around this table, we not only celebrate what he's done for us, but we are made one of another as we come together, not as a room filled with individuals, but as a family, the body of Christ, having in mind all of this each time we gather around the table, we remind ourselves of God's mercy. He continues to preserve the world, and He has shown merciful providence to us, and He has been loving and kind when we did not deserve loving kindness, and He has ultimately been merciful to save us of the sins that should send us to hell forever. But friends, if we are to share rightly in this meal, we remind ourselves that we are to come, and we are to come as people who observe the dignity of the table. So I call upon us this morning to carefully consider how we are living before the Lord. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The benefit is great when we gather around the table. Friends, so also is the danger great if we receive it improperly. If we are able to simply be hearers and not doers, to read, or even as I did this week, attempt to preach without repentance in our lives. So I just want us to pause for a moment. Believer, everyone's going to pause, and we're going to pray. Just take a moment as we examine ourselves before the Lord, before we continue. Friends, examine your lives and your conduct by the rule of God's commandments and acknowledge your sins before God. And if you've done wrong against one another, this table is an invitation for you to make that right. Even now, Matthew's gospel says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And after we have been reconciled with God and with one another, come to this table with confidence Because the scripture assures us in 1 John, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, he says, knowing that we would still sin, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, repentance removes doubt. It gives us assurance. It strengthens our faith. And as we come to this table, we are reminded that that faith is something that we can have absolute certainty in. As we celebrate this table, we are just pointing ourselves forward now to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we come with confidence and in hope, looking forward with great expectation. Friend, if you've repented of your sins and confessed your belief in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, if you've been baptized into the membership of a church, or you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, then we invite you to come to the table today. Come as people who are walking in repentance and walking in faith and throwing off the old life and putting on the new life. Come in confidence and celebrate, not just commiserate, but celebrate what God has done for us and what we have to look forward to. And as you celebrate, remind yourself of the beauty of this gospel, that though you were lost, you have been found. Though you were dead, you have been made alive. Though you were wicked, you've been shown mercy and kindness and forgiveness in Christ. And that this meal tells you and reminds you of the great cost that God paid to bring about your redemption. His son's torn flesh and broken body and spilt blood so that you might know everlasting life.